0: thanks for checking out the show. My podcasts all have ads. If you find the ads annoying, then consider subscribing to the podcast. With a subscription, you won't hear any ads. Plus, you'll have access to exclusive content only available to subscribers. If you can't afford a subscription, please write to me at admin at colemanhughes.org with a few words explaining why you enjoy the channel and how it benefits you. We'll get back to you after a short period of consideration, and we'll offer a subscription free of charge. Thanks again for watching and for all your support. Welcome to the first Conversations with Coleman of 2023. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll notice in a moment that I'm using a new studio where I can actually get guests in person. And we're starting things off right with a great guest, Meg Smaker. If you've heard of Meg, it's probably because of the controversy surrounding her new documentary, originally called Jihad Rehab, but later changed to The Unredacted. I actually like the original title better for what it's worth. Now, before I describe the controversy to you, I want to first say that this is one of the best documentaries I have ever seen in my life, hands down. And it was initially received that way at the Sundance Film Festival. Meg and her camera crew follow former jihadists who have just been released from Guantanamo Bay after 15 years. These former terrorists go through a special rehab program in Saudi Arabia and eventually try to integrate back into Saudi society with varying levels of success. The doc touches on America's war on terror, the root causes of jihadist violence, the challenges of becoming a civilian again once you've spent years fighting and in prison, and our tendency to dehumanize people who've done terrible things. As I said to Meg in our conversation, if you had told me that her documentary pissed some people off and you asked me to guess who, I would have guessed that it was neocons and Bush-era conservatives who might dislike the fact that her film humanizes former terrorists. That's what I would have predicted anyway. But everything is upside down nowadays, so it should come as no surprise that Meg's film was instead condemned... Not by the right, but by a small group of perpetually offended people on the far left. They condemn the film for being Islamophobic, which it certainly isn't. And they condemn Meg for being a white woman making a film about Arabs. Never mind that she lived in the Middle East for many years, speaks Arabic, and so forth. If this documentary had been created by an Arab filmmaker, but was identical in every other way, I have no doubt that these same people would be saying it should be nominated for an Oscar. It's really that good. Unfortunately, after her initially warm reception at Sundance, the people at Sundance reversed course and ejected her film from the festival, caving in to the demands of a small group of activists. Truly a cowardly concession to cancel culture, in my view. I don't know the status of the doc right now, but if you are able to see it, you really should. So without further ado, my conversation with Meg Smaker. Okay, Meg's Maker, thank oh, you so sorry. much for uh, <laughs> coming on my show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a, a whirlwind three days in New York, and uh, I'm not from here, so I'm glad it worked
0: out. Well, I'm glad you're capping it off with a conversation with me. I'm excited to get you on. I've wanted to get you on for a while. And before we get into your excellent documentary, which is either called Jihad Rehab or The Unredacted, and we'll get to that, I want to know a little bit about you. First of all, where did you grow up? And did you grow up as a, as a teen and young adult with a conscious interest in film?
1: No, I was born in the Bay Area in Oakland, and I grew up uh, when I was five. My parents moved from there to about 45 minutes east of Oakland to this really small town. And so I grew up in the East Bay and in Northern California. And, you know, family was, you know, middle class, working class and uh, just typically a very kind of my dad was a firefighter and I never really got into film. At all. I didn't get into film until later in life, but I was always interested in stories. Like I have a learning disability. And when I was younger, I started reading a lot later and I couldn't really read. So I would just look at pictures and just make up stories for the pictures. Mm. Are you dyslexic? A plethora of things. Mm. uh, Dyslexic, but also I have a tracking problem. So a lot of the times when I read stuff, this is why if you ever get a uh, email from me and there's a shit ton of typos, that is why I can't, I can't edit or see uh, mistakes and stuff. So I just have to have someone read over, read over things. So yeah, not a, not great when you're writing papers for university.
0: Interesting. You're, you're the third intelligent, successful person I've had on my podcast that had a learning dip- disability as a child. One was Scott Barry Kaufman, who's now a psychology professor at Barnard in Columbia, who was diagnosed learning disabled as a kid and wrote a whole book about it. I believe another was Ezra Klein, who had a learning dis- disability as a kid and now has gone on to be a very successful, you know, writer. And and so it's, it's always interesting to meet people that were that struggled with that or were yeah. categorized that way as a kid and then ended up being very successful precisely in the kinds of domains which you think would be hampered by such a yeah. problem.
1: I used to hate the fact when I was definitely younger having it because, you know, what would take you an hour to read. Mm. It takes me four. Mm. And so a really funny story. It was finals week and you have all these papers and exams that you have to do. And uh, I had this class that was on um, the Vietnam War mm. and the history of the Vietnam War. And it was taught by this old army ranger, like a curmudgeon to, to in every, <laughs> in every st- like a mm. old spicy curmudgeon. And uh, it was like 2 a.m. and I was, you know, to finish up the paper first class because it was due the next day. And you remember this change all button and spell check.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: It's 2 a.m. And I was, you know, to give it a quick run through. And so I just hit change, all change, all change, all change, all change, all print, print it off. So about a couple of days later, I handed in the next day. And a couple of days later, he hands back everyone's paper except for mine. And he goes, you kids, every year you turn the same fucking regurgitated shit. But this year, one paper stood out. This year, as soon as I read the title and the first paragraph, I knew it was going to be different. <laughs> And I'm on the back row being like, that's my paper. I'm awesome. (laughs) And then he starts to read it and he says, the title of this paper is the North Vitamins Attack the South
0: Vitamins.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And there was like vitamins getting napalmed in the trenches and it was all about vitamin war. And uh, yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, it definitely has, um, it used to be something that I really hated uh, because my brother is the opposite. He's Mm. like 4.3 GPA, my graduate high school, the 1.25, like yeah, it's not, not, wasn't a very good student. But what I really, as I'm older now, I'm extremely thankful for it for three reasons. I think when you're younger and you struggle with stuff, it makes you, I think, not only more resilient, but it makes you more empathetic. Like I realized that my brain doesn't work like everyone else's brain. Mm. And I think when you're in a class and you get what the teacher's saying, you just assume that everyone else does, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't get it, there's something wrong with you. And so for me, having a learning disability, it made me realize that not everyone learns the same, which means not everyone's brain like takes an in information identically. And so it kind of really at a young age made me aware that my perceptions, my experience was not a universal truth. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And it also like made me realize that to get myself and understand myself more about how, how I learn. So it took me years to understand how to kind of overcome that. But when I did, and I um, finally, because I dropped out of college, and when I finally went back to college, I graduated, taught my class, and all that kind of good stuff, and eventually got into Stanford, I don't think there's probably ever been anyone I could be wrong to get into Stanford that had like a one point five GPA when they graduated high school.
0: Maybe you and Ezra Klein. I I don't think you went to Stanford, but he was another that had like a GPA that bad in high school and now is a serious intellectual. So as I understand it, you were a firefighter for many years. Yeah. Was that right out of high school? And was that at that point, were you developing an interest in film or were you just seeing your path as, you know, working class firefighter in, in your dad's mold? My film
1: trajectory came way, way later in life. It's when I was living in Yemen that I decided to switch careers. Mm. So at that age, um, I became a firefighter. Not not, a lot of people assume it's because my dad. It wasn't because my dad, I actually didn't really had any interest in firefighting when I was younger. I mean, I grew up at the firehouse and we would, you know, I got taught how to like throw a ball and hit it and play baseball. That's from some of the guys at the Firehouse. But it was never something that it was going to be my profession until I moved out of the house and I had some roommates. I lived with five guys and one of them was a firefighter and he told me about it. And the way he talked about it was, you know, it was like the best job in the world. Every day is different. You get to work in a team. You get to travel. You could do physical work. And it just sounded awesome. So I went through a fire academy and got hired on seasonally that first year. And during the summers, I would fight fire, and during the winters, I would go to college. And I did that for two years. And then that after that second season, I got offered a full time job, so I dropped mm. out of college and became a full time firefighter. And yeah, and it, I loved it. I mean, it's I'm really thrive in environments that are like fast paced, high stakes problem solving. Mm. That's where I feel like I perform the best. Mm. And that's all firefighting is when you're on scene. You have to make you have to take in loads of information really fast and be very decisive about it. And, you know, you don't just run into a burning building. You look at the building construction. You look at, like, you know, things around it. There's a lot of ingest of information to be able to come to those conclusions. And I think that a lot of people, when they find out that in the film industry, when they find out that I used to be a firefighter, they're always so surprised. They think it has, like, nothing in common, Mm. right? And I always argue that I think the thing that made me a really good firefighter are the things that also make me a really good documentary filmmaker. Mm. So in firefighting, you have to have obviously physicalness and all other kind of stuff. But I think I would say that the best firefighters that I worked with had extreme empathy Mm. and were really good at fast pace, high stakes problem solving. Mm. And that's what filmmaking is when you do the kind of films that I I
0: do. So you seem like the kind of person that rushes towards danger at at some level. And so Part of your story that I'm interested in is when 9-11 happened, you reacted by, you know, going to Afghanistan and and traveling to the source of the people that had just attacked us. I guess that was mostly Saudi Arabia as well. But most people's natural instinct upon being attacked would not be to go to the place, you know, where that had just attacked us. What was it about you that made your reaction to go to the Middle East and travel?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think for me, and and I talked about this with Sam a little bit. Is you know, my dad always said that there is only three types of people in the world. You know, and those that when you hit them, they just want to hit you right back. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Mm -hmm. Those that when you hit them, they just run away. They're like, I don't want to, I don't want to even deal with this right now. And those that when you hit them, they're just like, why, why did you just hit me? And for me, I do think that I've just always been wired that way. And so immediately after 9-11, I started reading a lot of books about Islam. I started reading a lot of books about the politics of the Middle East and uh, some books about Arabic. And I watched the news incessantly and documentaries. And I think for me, it was seeing these sources of information completely contradicting each other. Mm-hmm. So for example, I'd read about Islam and you know some of the rules and, and it, one book would say, In Islam, you're not allowed to kill innocent people. And then I would watch the news, and the news would say this is a violent religion that's just bloodthirsty. Mm -hmm. And when you have no experience in the Middle East, when you don't really have at that time any Muslim friends, I had no idea how to decipher which one of these was true. And I realized after a while that each one of these inputs of information, be it like the news or or books, was was information through someone else's filter. Mm -hmm. And in order for me to like really understand, I had to remove that filter and so that's why a little bit over six months after 9/11, I went to Afghanistan to try to find those answers for myself. And I think that experience just really humbled me. And I mean I wasn't like you when I was in my early 20s. I was definitely like a know-it-all. like <laughs> like I had a very strong world view mm. and that just put it in check. And I think that...
0: Were you going over there with the intention to film people or just to meet people no, and talk I, to them was, and then, and then I come was, home? Yeah, I
1: wasn't even in the film industry then. Uh, I went over there because I had questions and the questions weren't being answered in mainstream media. And
0: so were you just going up to people on the street and saying, hey, or... Like,
1: well, I literally your- hitchhiked across the border from Pakistan to Afghanistan and just talked to people along the way, stayed mm-hmm. with different families. A family took me in. And then anytime I went to a different town, they're like, oh, I have a cousin there. You should stay with him. And mm-hmm. literally there was just one extended family that I would just, mm-hmm. they would like just put me up in every place that I went because they mm-hmm. had cousins everywhere. And so, which is pretty common over there. And and so the first trip, because I've been back since then, but that first trip, it was, I just stayed with local Afghan families. And one of the really, one of the things that I remember most vividly, and the thing that really kind of stuck with me was I went to a town that was near a place called Mazahar Sharif, and so it was a small village. And I stayed with a family there that were, uh, I think, uncles of the people that I met when I when I uh, in Kabul. And they didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak any Pashtun or Dari. But I have amazing pictionary and charade skills. <laughs> uh, and so we got along great. And it was like the second or third day I was there. It's a small town, so everyone knew everyone. And we went to the market. And about three or four days before I arrived, there had been a huge bomb that had been dropped on the neighborhood, and it just kind of completely obliterated a house on the lower end of the block, and ever killed everyone—the whole entire family. And it was a—it's a small village. So it was really, really devastating. And you know, to to just emphasize that anymore, here's a country and a people who are at that very moment being bombed by my country
2: mm-hmm.
1: and my government, but have offered. To take me in, and feed me, and clothe me, and treat me as one of their own. I don't know if that same thing would have happened in the United States had the roles been reversed. And one day we're walking in the market, and there was a guy in the market. I was with the grandfather, house, and and the, the grandson, and there was a guy across in the market who started yelling at me, and I didn't know what he was saying, but. I could tell that he wasn't happy that I was there. So the grandfather just ran up to him, picked him up by the scruff of the neck, yelled something to him in, uh, I think, Pashtun Dari. I'm trying to remember what language. And um, the, the other man walked over and said, you know, sorry, and in Pashtun, and then welcome to Afghanistan in English. And that was it. Mm. And like, I'm sure these men knew each other for decades. Mm-hmm. And, but he defended me to this man. And I think that That one instance alone made me realize that my understanding of the world was very skewed, and that the things that I had been told and the filter that I had built up after watching all these news programs were wasn't the whole story, and it was a very inaccurate picture. I'm not not sure. I'm rambling on. Just no.
0: I mean, mean, it makes sense. (laughs) I think you know. I was recently talking to someone who just moved to America and was talking about the misimpression they got about Americans from watching news about Americans. right? like they thought all of us, everyone owns guns and love, yeah. loves violence. And it's just very easy to get a caricature of a people just by watching the news or by just looking at the impression you get. And when you get there, you you almost always realize how diverse societies are in terms of there are different factions that believe different things and, and so forth. I want to get into uh, your... Well, your, to, to that point, yeah,
1: I want to yeah. add to that real quick, because I lived in Yemen
0: for a while and you know,
1: I've been to places like Somalia and and Afghanistan, and I always get whenever I come back to the states, people tell me like, "Oh my God, you must have been so dangerous! Like, were mm-hmm. you scared for your life the whole time? Like, those places are so, mm-hmm. like, you know, so violent." Mm-hmm. And it's funny because it's this perception that we get, and I try to explain it to people in the fact that, like, imagine that you knew know absolutely nothing about the U.S. Mm-hmm didn't know where it was on a map. You'd never seen any American films, didn't even know who the president was. The only thing you knew about America is what you read the New York Times about the rapes, the muggings, the robberies, the killings, school shootings. You would think that the States was like Mad Max on crack. Right. And you're like, I, I'm never going to go there. It's so dangerous. Right. And that's kind of how most of these countries are portrayed where there are things that happen, but those that are like violent and and, and it does happen here. We have school shootings and, and things like that, but it's not the 100% of the reality all the time. And I think because of how our news media is set up, the, the nuance, the complexity is lost. And I think it's like very sensationalistic stories is kind of all that
0: we hear about. I would also be afraid of being an outsider who doesn't speak the language. Yeah. And that for me would connect to my fears of the violence or like if I, if I knew something about the society, if I spoke the language, I would trust my ability to navigate safely. but being an outsider who didn't speak the language, it would magnify my fears as being almost anywhere uh, and certainly place with some problems of violence right
1: yeah well I mean I think it was funny so I had my parents come visit me when I was in Yemen and they'd never been there and in mm-hmm. Yemen especially in in, in Sana anyone who belongs to like any kind of clan or whatnot, they'll, they'll wear uh, an AK-47. Mm-hmm. Like so, so there's a lot of people just walking around the streets in the Capitol with just an AK-47 slung over their shoulder. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar with that, like when my dad came, he was really alarmed. He's like, oh my God, this is like a violent country. Everyone's carrying around the <laughs> AK-47. I was like, dad, it's not really like seen as something to like we're going to use this every day. It's more of a Mm -hmm. status symbol. It's like, Mm -hmm. I belong to a clan. Mm -hmm. I I have people. And so I I said, it's kind of like if you're in New York and you're like, you're like sporting a Prada purse. Mm -hmm. It's like a status symbol. Like I'm a successful businesswoman. Like I can have this thing. I was like, just look at it like a very different kind of a
0: a Prada purse. And he's just like, okay. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. It's all about context, right? Like Israel is like that. Like you will see so many soldiers in in that case, walking around the street with AK-47s. And you don't feel unsafe because, you know, the context yeah. in which and and there it it's a status thing as well. But, you know, that they're soldiers, you know, that it's part of a community. Okay. And, and, you know, I've talked to people a little bit from a different age now in parts of America where everyone grew up bringing a rifle to school. Yeah. You know, and they didn't get in fights all the time. They weren't. Yeah. I'd be more afraid of mass shootings today than in some of those tight knit communities where it's just culturally everyone has a rifle with them. So it is there's a lot more to be said about it than just the mere fact of having guns. Yeah. No, I think it's the culture surrounding the gun ownership often that is the problem. What I have learned is facts without
1: context is not truth, it's propaganda. Mm. So if I'm just giving you facts and I don't Mm. give you the context around it, Mm -hmm. then it's just, that's not the truth. And I think that if you're giving, you know, statistics about gun ownership in America, and that's the only number you give me, it's like, oh, they must be like gun crazy over there. Mm. Mm. And then you kind of go into it more about a lot of people own a lot of guns. Right. There's a lot of people who don't don't own any guns and kind of the the statistics and the math behind it. I think that like, I don't know, I just feel that there are a lot of people who have forgotten how important context is. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes it's everything.
0: Yeah. So your documentary, which is excellent and I yeah, would what, what did you think of it? So I I went into it with no preconceptions really, thirty or forty minutes into the documentary, and just to give a brief summary of this documentary, it follows closely a few terrorists, though they hadn't been convicted either in the U.S. or Saudi Arabia, some of them in the course of the film sort of admitted to involvement with terrorism, held in Guantanamo Bay for about 15 years. And then through a Saudi government program, were allowed to come to Saudi Arabia and participate in a a really healthy, from my vantage point, rehab program, like a, a true rehabilitation program. And your film follows them in that rehab program, struggling to adjust to life you know, outside of a cage. And then another approximately year and a half of them struggling to reintegrate yeah. into Saudi society yeah. as as Yemenis, which was also An part, added la- part, layer. part yeah. of the layer. So my impression was, I think, you know, 30 minutes into the film, I said to myself, there is no way that you can hate these guys just this quickly into the film, right? Like at the very, very beginning of the film, you, you have no idea what to think of them. They're from another culture. They've probably killed people, maybe many people, maybe many innocent people. And yet 30, 45 minutes into the film, I can see I can see myself in this person. Right. Yeah. I can see how a psychologically normal person, given the right life experiences and the wrong well, really the wrong life experiences could go down this path. Yeah. So that was my impression of the film. It was clearly a humanizing portrait of these people without without being whitewashing anything that they had done. Yeah. So, you know, to me as a consumer of documentary, that is often what I like most is, is when, you know, simply by showing someone, simply by asking them the right question, getting them talking, you recast your previously held notions about a person or about a topic. And I thought it did a great job of that. I thought it was, uh, you know, interestingly, if you had shown me the documentary, in full and then asked me, told me, Coleman, some people are going to get offended by that, by this documentary. Who are those people going to be? I would have guessed probably folks on the American right that hold the wound of 9-11 and, you know, jihadist terrorism very closely to their heart will probably get offended at the fact that this humanizes jihadist terror. Yeah, that would have been my guess of of who would have gotten offended. We'll get into who did get offended and, and the fallout yeah. of that. But that was my basic reaction to yeah to the documentary.
1: Yeah, I think you know the film for in the in the course of making the film, I interviewed about one hundred and fifty over one hundred fifty of these guys, and about thirty of that one hundred and fifty were interested in doing the project. 12 of those 30 were interested in doing the project without kind of any kind of like disguise or their face being blurred. And for me, it was really important that you see these men's eyes mm-hmm. so that you could see their humanity because mm-hmm. that's where we connect with other human beings. Yeah. And so there was, there was always this throughout making this film, I was time and time again, realized that, that the perception and how perception sometimes integrates into our psyche is fact. And then you have this experience of like, oh shit, like this is, this is just perceived idea of who these men are and what they're about. And so what was interesting for me is as I was making the film and talking to these men and spending so much time with them, it reminded me of this story that my dad told me when I was little about a fishing village in Northern California that had a problem with invasive starfish. And he said that one day all the fishermen got together and they decided, all right, once and for all, we're just need to get rid of these starfish. We need to kill them all. So, they gathered all the starfish up and they cut them up into three, four, five pieces. <laughs> Thinking they're dead, they threw those pieces back into the ocean, mm-hmm. not knowing that starfish regenerate, mm-hmm. right? So, then the starfish population just exploded, devastated the local fishing economy. Mm-hmm. The moral of the story being when you try to fix a problem you do not understand, you typically made it worse. Mm-hmm. Now, the day after 9 11, most experts put the number of Al Qaeda members around 400. Before the pandemic, those same experts put the number of Al-Qaeda around 100,000, give or take, including affiliate groups. So basically, the U.S. has been starfishing the shit of the Middle East for the past two decades because we do not understand these men. We do not understand what actually motivates them. We do not understand who they are as people. And there's an expert in this field called Ali Soufan, and he has for years been saying that. He's like, you cannot fix a problem when you do not understand these men. Mm -hmm. And we do not understand these men. And so for me, the film just seeks to understand who these men are on on a human level, right? And let them tell their own stories and hear their perspective and just give a space for that. And I think in doing so, it's really hard not to see the humanity in them. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard not to see the similarities. And I think... What was a big surprise for me in terms of audience was that a large portion of the the vet community who saw the film were really impacted by it in a very positive way, which I didn't see coming. I had a lot of vets reach out and say that they found the film healing. They say that they found the film to be something that like was kind of a missing piece of their experience over there that filled in a lot of blanks for them. And I had, you know, a lot of guys, you know, had a very similar sentiment. And like, so for example, one guy wrote me and he said, you know, I would never admit this to anyone publicly, but I miss war.
2: Mm.
1: I don't miss the fighting or, you know, being shot at. I miss the brotherhood. Mm. I miss the camaraderie and I miss the sense of purpose. And since I've got back to the States, I haven't found that anywhere. I've been, I've been longing for that. And I'm just like, I just feel that it's just not here. And then I haven't seen that until I saw your film. And these guys had that same brotherhood. These guys talked about the same sense of purpose. He's like, it was really alarming for me because these were the men that I was sent to kill. And what I realized after watching your film is that I had way more in common with the men that I was sent to kill than the people who sent me there in the first place.
0: Hmm. That's remarkable because on one level, most wars are like this, right? Like we send disproportionately the poorer members of our society, usually men, to go kill other poor men from other countries, and that experience of, let's call it alienation, right? It's like, there's a lot of alienated young men don't feel that they have a great role to fill in their society that are looking for purpose and meaning yeah. and struggle, yeah. noble struggle. Yeah. And actually prefer that adversity to a quiet but meaningless life yeah. where they don't feel like they are contributing, like they are essential. And at some level, those men can understand and resonate psychologically with the soldiers they're trying to kill more so than, you know, the people, as you said, who, who were sent to kill them. And fundamentally, I think of this problem of reintegrating soldiers into society as, as this. And this is something I could even understand in my own psychology bit. It's Like you go from having one big problem in life, yeah, which is survive, you know, protect my brothers. Yeah. One big problem, only one problem. And suddenly you go from having one big problem to having many, many small problems, right? Yeah. Which is for some people much easier, but for a certain ty- a certain cast of mind, it's actually much easier to have one big problem than to have oh, many small I,
1: problems. That's one... That's one thing that really resonates with me because a lot of people say, you know, when they find out my background and all the stuff that I've done over the course of you know, my life. I mean, I've been kidnapped. I lived in the Middle East, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq. They always think like, oh, my God, you're so brave. Like you must. I'm like, no, that for me, that's not a big that doesn't cause me a lot of anxiety. But every tax season, when I have to fill out that paperwork that I do not understand, I have like a mental breakdown. uh, Emergencies
0: don't actually (laughs) cause anxiety. They actually get rid of anxiety In, in my personal experience. Anytime I've had like, you know, a family with a health emergency where the next two weeks I have one problem, which is to make sure my family member stays alive. I never feel anxious really in those situations because you have to be a soldier. You just, and they're as horrible as it is, it's actually, clarifying in some sense. That's yeah, very like task
1: and goal-oriented. Exactly. This is the thing I need to do. Yeah. Okay, what are the things that are going to get me there? Right. And it's a very, it's a focus and it's like a a kind of, you know, determination and drive that in those situations requires it of you in order to like get through it or survive it or to achieve what you need to do. And I think when the way that I describe the way my brain works is that most of the time in relaxing situations, I feel like if I had to give a visual of my brain, it's like a pack of drunken monkeys just like jumping around everywhere up there. Um, But then like when I was firefighting, when I went on a call and it was a really bad call, like, you know, multi car pileup or something like that, all the monkeys would just get in a single fire line and be quiet.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I always thought that I was wired backwards Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of other people... You know, when there's a huge emergency kind of, you know, fight, flight, all that kind of stuff. But for me, it's where I feel like I come into my own and I'm able to really focus and and do what needs to be done. And I think that it made a lot of sense when you just said that, because I do think it's this kind of kind of environment does attract a certain kind of person. for sure. Yeah.
0: So another question I wanted to ask you is in this rehabilitation program, you talk to 150 guys. And ended up, you know, three or four of them ended up being the real through line and and focal point of it. So did you feel you could tell at all who was really rehabilitating and really changing and forming a commitment to live, to to not go back to jihad and who was actually just trying to say the right things and deceive so they could get out of there?
1: I mean, I spent quite a lot of time with these guys. And I remember in the film, the the art therapist, Dr. Butter, um, he, sweet, sweet man. And I remember talking to him once because I was curious what he thought. Mm. And I said, if you had to rank the men in terms of not worried at all, once he gets out of the the rehab center, like, you know, a little worried could go either way or like, hmm, Mm hmm. And he said, if it was, hmm, we wouldn't let let them go Um, because they do all this evaluation before they they let them out. But his ranking was exactly the same as mine in terms Mm -hmm. of who I thought was most going to be at risk and who I was worried about and who I didn't really have any worries about. But I think, yeah, I, I mean, I followed four men throughout the film. One of them dropped out halfway through. And what I like about the film because early on, someone told me, "Oh, just you have too many characters. Just focus on one." And for me, it was like if I did that, it would kind of defeat the purpose in terms of the film because it was taking this very complex and nuanced look at this topic. And one of the reasons there are four characters is because after talking to over 150 men, I realized that there was four basic different motivations about why they join these groups, mm. and there there were exceptions, obviously. But they would fall into one of four categories. And I think that for me, once I kind of realized that pattern, it helped me in choosing the characters of the film Mm. kind of represent those different motivations. Mm. Um, What were those? uh, So the first one I think that most Americans are familiar with is The Cause. Right. So you see Muslims being oppressed or persecuted or, or violently killed in a different country. And you feel that it is your religious duty to go and defend them. Mm-hmm. And that's Abu Ghannam, in the mm-hmm. film. He saw Muslims being slaughtered in Bosnia mm-hmm. and the West was doing nothing. And he's like, you know, these are my fellow Muslims. Like someone has to do something. So if no one else is going to help them, I am. And so he went there. And I think that's the, the motivation that most people in the States are familiar with. But the other three have nothing to do with religion. Mm-hmm. And I think those the other three are, are not really talked about a lot. And they are the second motivation is um, economic necessity. And that's Nodder, right? Mm-hmm. He For him, this was a career. He started when he was young and a teenager. He was having a hard time finding a job. And this became a, a steady paycheck for him. And so from, I think he started in age 16 until I think 2000. So from age 16 and he went to Guantanamo when he was in his late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. So I think that he was in this for a while and it was his his profession, I, I, for lack of a better word. And then the other two, the third motivation is peer pressure, right? So that's Ali. His brother was one of the lead instructors at El training camp in Afghanistan and in the Middle East, it's very different than in the U.S. In terms of the culture here, we're very individualistic. So if my brother told me to do something, I'd be like, fuck off. I'm going to do whatever I want. Right? There, We don't have a strong community here like they do there. and We don't have as strong, at least my experience, it's not as strong family ties yeah. um, here. But over there, if your older sibling or your father tells you to do something, you do it. And so, so Allie went to a training camp because peer pressure. And the last one, which is more age dependent, more for the younger men is sense of adventure. And that's Muhammad, right? He says in the movie, you know, I was 19. I didn't like school. I didn't want to work. This guy offered me a free ticket to go shoot rockets in Afghanistan. Like, why not? And what was really interesting. And so Sebastian Younger came to the screen la- last night and uh, he did the Q and A with me and he's, you know, he's been st- in the vet world for a really long time. He's written a lot of books on it. And we had this conversation about how the motive, those four motivations, the cause, economic necessity, sense of adventure, and peer pressure, also mirror similar motivations about why people join the US military. Right, Right. I so
0: maybe except for peer pressure, but the other three I think no, are really I, so strong. No,
1: peer pressure I would say would be, the way I would define peer pressure, so you have obviously the cause, right? So mm-hmm. that would, I knew a lot of people who joined up after nine eleven. Yeah. right, yeah. the cause. Economic necessity. I come from working class. And so a lot of people I know can't afford college. So they went to the military Mm. to be able to pay for that college. Right. Right. The third one, peer pressure. I know a lot of people who come from military families Mm. and it's a very proud thing. And, Mm. you know, uncles, aunts, fathers, brothers are all in the military. It's very similar in that aspect. Mm -hmm. Peer pressure might be the wrong word, but it's like, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a friend or family kind of thing that's in the, it's, that's in the zeitgeist. And the last one, sense of adventure, again, I know a lot of people who, in order to see the world and travel, military is the best option for that. And so what I realized after talking to so many men is that it was never about good and evil. It was about time and circumstance, right? So for example, when I was in Yemen, it had like, last night was really interesting after the screening I went to a, a deli and it was owned by a Yemeni man. And I, I started talking to him.
0: All the best delis in in Harlem and New York in general are generally owned by Yemenis. It, it,
1: it's, yeah, it I was, lived in
0: Harlem for four years. And I think 90% of the yeah. best delis were owned by Yemenis, yeah, which yeah. is an interesting story. I'd love to see an article explaining that history.
1: Well, I think it's really interesting. I went in and I heard the the it was on and I, the radio was on and it was it was Arabic. So I was just kind of eavesdropping on it. And then I heard Ali Bil Salah. And that was the president of Yemen when I was there. And I was like, wait a minute. And then I started really listening and I looked at the guy and I, in Arabic, I was like, are you from Yemen? He's like, yeah. Like, you know, how did, how did you know? I'm like, I used to live in. So we just started talking. And he was telling me, you know, that the place that he's from in Yemen hasn't had electricity for the last eight years. And all the schools, all the public schools are closed. And so the only pe- schools that are open are here if you can pay money and most people can't. And so according to him, there's this whole generation now that's growing up that the only free schools, are the madrasas. Mm. And a lot of people either aren't sending their kid to school or sending them there. And so imagine being this in this time and circumstances where you aren't getting an education. There's like a lot of things going on in your country that is just tumultuous. And compare that upbringing to when I was there when you had public schools and you had you know, other options. And I think things have changed so much in Yemen to where when we're talking about time and circumstance, it's not just. Being in a country or religion, it's like when are you in that space, Mm -hmm. and how are you operating in that space, and how is that affecting your decision making, the filter that you which you see the world, and in in essence your your life trajectory. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I feel like I think again, context, 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 Mm. context.
0: yeah. Yeah. So as a documentary filmmaker, there is this perpetual problem or challenge you have, where on the one hand at some level you have to befriend your subjects you have to you can't have an antagonistic relation with relationship with them at the very least there has to be some camaraderie and eventually maybe some warmth even to keep it going on the other hand you may have to show things about them that they don't want the world to see yeah. So there's there's one scene where the documentary where uh, one of the subjects is starting to smoke a hookah, yeah. which obviously I don't think is a big deal, and I've done yeah. many times. Yeah. But for him, he doesn't want his, his dad, fa- he doesn't he want his, his dad, dad to know, specifically yeah, yeah. to see that, which is so relatable. Yeah, yeah. It's right? like it's
1: like when you're in high school and you go smoke a cigarette out exactly. in the garage, hoping your want my yeah mom to see that, yeah, even yeah. though
0: I don't actually think it's a big deal. Yeah. But you did show the beginning of him doing that, right? You shut off the yeah. camera when he asked you to, yeah. but it's still. Yeah. You know, so how do you negotiate that trade-off as, you know, wanting to be their friends, as opposed to sometimes showing parts of them they may not want the world to see?
1: Yeah. I think before you do, I mean, everyone's different, but before you do any project, I think it's good to, to know where the red lines are mm-hmm. and different projects. There are different red lines. What, what what I mean by red line is that we're just not going to go there. Some people it's politics. Some people it's, you know, just, choice of, 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 you know, beliefs and leaning and and whatnot. Some people are doing a piece on like, you know, a celebrity and it's part of the contract is you can't show XYZ. Mm -hmm. So it it depends on the project. But for me, it's always been, I don't show anything or I, or if I, if I have something that was going to go in the film, that is going to put the subject in the film in harm's way. Right. Mm -hmm. So if he was actually smoking weed or doing drugs that were illegal I wouldn't show that in the right. film because that would get him thrown in prison. Mm-hmm. But his dad was not so. So Muhammad was always a bit of a rebel and he would describe himself. I mean, the saying is, which means in Arabic, it means every house has a toilet. But the actual tra- meaning, the translation is you're the black sheep of the family, mm-hmm. right? And so he mm-hmm. was definitely the, the black sheep of that family. Mm-hmm. And his dad was kind of constantly riding him. Mm-hmm. And any kind of hint that Muhammad was doing anything untoward, he would really jump on him for. And so even though hookah is not a big thing, it's also not a good thing either. And his dad was just really conscious of not having, having him like slip into like the bad way again. And so, you know, we were hanging out and smoking hookah and it was this bachelor pad that he shares with a bunch of friends and they watch MTV music videos and listen to really loud music Mm -hmm. and and talk about football and, and stuff like that. And it was just shared by these, this community of, of young, young Yemeni men. And, uh, yeah, but his, he, we, I started filming, it was fine. And then as soon as I turned the camera on him, he's just like, and he had the hookah in his hand. He's like, oh, I don't want my dad to see, cause I don't want to get yelled at again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think for me, the way that I, when I talk to my subjects, it's like, listen, if there's anything that you want to tell me or anything you don't want me to show, you have to say before. Mm-hmm. So for example, if I'm, you're interviewing me, and if we've agreed that say, You know, if something's off the record, you have to Mm -hmm. say what's off the record. And then after whatever you say is off the record, but you can't give an interview. And then two months later, be like, Hey, that one part was off the record. Right. So I said, as long as you tell me beforehand, it won't go in the film. But if you tell me like five months later, then that's just not how this works. Right. And I'm always very clear about that because I think it's good that everyone is on the same page. And I know, you know, how... documentary is made and how you're making it. And so, for example, with these men, I have a a policy that I never meet subjects with a camera. I always meet them first without a camera. It's just Mm -hmm. me and them talking. Mm -hmm. And I do that because making a documentary is different than just interviewing someone on a one-off, right? So most reporters that had gotten to the center before, were only allowed for a, like a one or two hours and they have to get to the point really quickly. And they like they need these answers. They need that soundbite. And for me, I had the time and the space and the grace to get to know these men on a different level. So the first time I met with them, it was an imperative that I found out where all the bodies are buried. And for me, that first meeting is all about explaining what a documentary is and how it's made. And then what I always tell people is I'm going to be in your life for a really long time and mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you a lot of personal questions mm-hmm. and I want you to feel comfortable with me. And if you don't, then I don't want you to do the project for two reasons. Number one, I had a documentary made about me and I wasn't really involved in it. And, uh, it was very inaccurate and a really horrible experience. Hmm. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Hmm. The second one is, is that, you know, if you're over the age of 20, 25, you've have enough life experience to where, you know, when someone's being genuine and sincere with you. And if you're filming someone and they're uncomfortable, that will come through on the camera. And what I like about the film is it's very clear that these guys are very comfortable with me and they trust me. And so for that first meeting, what I always tell people is, I want you to be comfortable with me. So for this first interview, you can ask me any question you want and I'll answer honestly, I mean, any question. And so they basically essentially interview me. And at the end of it, I say, if you're comfortable with me and you want to do the project, you know, let's move forward. But if not, I completely understand, and I think it was doubly important to do it in this instance because these men had been tortured and interrogated for fifteen years, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to like set the bar as like this is not that.
0: It also seemed like towards the beginning of the documentary, before you had reached the peak of your rapport with them, many of them were treating it like it might be yeah. an interrogation, and yeah. you could totally sense that they, yeah. they were treating it like anything they anything they say would be used against them in a yeah. court of law, and yeah. you can hear that,
1: yeah. And then I think what was interesting is, and this is what I wanted to represent in the film, you see in the very beginning, like, they're skeptical of me, I'm skeptical of them. we're both kind of guarded. And then as the film goes on, there's this opening up, Mm -hmm. and there's a vulnerability that comes on both sides, right? And I think that that, to me, is what was really interesting about that journey and portraying that in the film, because when you make a film... You want to meet the audience where they're at. And I wanted to be very transparent about where I was in the beginning, definitely where it wasn't, where it was when I was at the end of filming this. And so you see those first couple of interactions where they're really guarded. And I'm just skeptical. And then you kind of have this very, I think, beautiful kind of opening up of these men, their stories and their, and their emotional journeys.
0: Yeah. So I mentioned earlier in the interview, if you had just shown this to me, told me somebody's outraged about it. I certainly would have said that it was folks on the right that carry the wound of jihadist terrorism very close to them. To humanize the enemy would have been an affront to some people. Yeah. And and I could I could even understand that from their perspective. I would not have guessed that you would have gotten critiques from Muslim and Arab filmmakers. Filmmakers who 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 are saying that you are perpetuating harmful stereotypes about your subjects. That's not something I would have guessed based on the content of the documentary itself. So, and it's, you know, the story of how your documentary initially was widely, maybe not widely, but but very duly praised yeah. at Sundance and received very well, also received very well by Muslim American audiences and audiences of color. And then later, it seemed like a handful of Arab and Muslim filmmakers, you know, said, this is horrible. It's a white woman that's behind this. And she ought not tell stories that are from our culture. And then it was my understanding of this situation is that a lot of people associated with the film producers and Sundance people all of a sudden pretend, pretended they didn't love the movie that they actually saw and that they agreed with the criticisms and firing squatted you basically, which is, um, it's really a terrible thing, it, you know. It strikes me as as cowardly in the sense that if you're going to be associated with a film and believe in a project, and then a small number of people criticize it on grounds that you almost certainly disagree with, having been involved with the project, this is the. I mean, the, the condition we live in is people have something to lose. People have jobs to lose. Yeah. And, but it nevertheless it is cowardly, and it's it's a betrayal if in fact you believe in the project, right? So, I mean, the whole dynamics of cancellation around this were very troubling to me for that reason, because it seems so clear to me that the people essentially backstabbing you, basically saying, oh, yeah, no, sorry, I disavow the project. Meg Smaker's horrible. They could not possibly have really believed what they were saying. If they honestly held that opinion, then it's just a conversation. Right. Yeah. But it's it seems very unlikely unlike, to me that they actually thought you should have told you shouldn't have told the story as a white woman, which was a big critique. Yeah. And so I guess my, my question is, what was that experience like for you to um, to feel that critique in the first place? I guess let's start there. What do you make of the substance of the critique that you as a white woman should not have told this story?
1: Well, I mean, I think to be to be completely, I mean, it might be too in the weeds, but the, the criticisms have evolved over time and the attacks have evolved over time. But I think that my personal belief is I do know that there in the documentary s- space, in the independent documentary space, there are, is a camp of people who believe that you should not be allowed to tell a story of a community that you're not a part of. And there's a fraction of, of the documentary. Can I stop you there, though?
0: Because yeah. I actually think, to be more specific, it's that white people should not tell. Because, like, this this critique would never be leveled at someone like Dia Khan for doing her great documentary, The White Right. right? Yeah. I don't remember anyone saying... As an Afghani-Pakistani, well, she's from the Netherlands, I think, but that's her heritage. She she doesn't get to tell a story about the white right. It's actually only yeah. specifically white people are not supposed to tell.
1: It's funny you mentioned that because yeah. I was going to tell a little anecdote here. Um, I have a, I had a friend, not, no longer friends after all this, but I had a friend who uh, was a documentary filmmaker. And there was a Tiger Woods documentary that was made by this gentleman called very talented filmmaker, Matthew Heineman, And he'd make... Previous documentaries. Um, is, is this
0: the big one that was on HBO like yeah, a year ago? Yeah, yeah, I
1: saw that. And so, um, yeah, HBO had hired him, and uh, there was this filmmaker that I knew that was going on social media and just slamming him, mm-hmm. just really attacking him about, mm-hmm. like, you know, like, he shouldn't be directing this. He's white. They should have got a black director to do this. This is like ridiculous, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I, and I, I didn't argue with her because I'm just like, that's what you believe. Okay, that's mm-hmm. fine. I disagree with you. I think for me, I don't care who made the film. Mm-hmm. It's about the work itself. Right. Right. So if you made a film, like a good example of this is uh, as a firefighter for a long time, and I don't watch firefighting movies. And I don't read b- books about firefighting because every time I see them, they're just so fucking inaccurate that it's oh, yes. annoying.
0: As a jazz musician... I've never watched Whiplash. I'm sure Whiplash. you love La, La, La Land. Yeah. yeah. Actually, La, La Land was kind of nice. Okay. Whiplash, I can't
1: stand. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think that like, I think when you're that close to it, you're just like, oh, and, yeah. and so Sebastian Younger has written amazing books, you know, War, um, A Tribe, A Perfect Storm. And he wrote one book called Fire. And even though I'm a huge fan of Sebastian's work, it's a book that I never read on purpose because I was just like, there's, this is the one thing that I know a lot about. I'm, I know that I'm going to like, not yeah. like this book. Right. And then finally, I kind of like, so one thing I haven't read of is I'll, I'll read it. And it was so well-researched. Mm. It's the only thing I've ever read on firefighting that would, I would say is very accurate mm. in terms of culture, in terms of like, he goes really into the weeds and he did his due diligence. And the thing is, is that the work spoke for itself, yeah. right? And so for me, that's where I come from. Like Sebastian Younger is not a firefighter. He has no background in firefighting, but he was able to put in the work and the blood, blood and the sweat and the tears and do such a deep dive and have a curious mind And be humble about like the things he didn't know that he was able to create a book that I would say is probably the best book I've ever read on firefighting and what it is to be a firefighter. And so when this person came to me and or I saw them posting on social media, the movie hadn't been out yet. Mm -hmm. It 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 was just announced by HBO, so no one had seen it. And I'm just like, why don't we just wait to watch it? Because if it's good, then I don't think it matters. Fast forward a couple years, the same filmmaker who is from that are Asian, have Asian background and, and, and whatnot, they reach out to me. Like, I want to do a film in Saudi Arabia, you know, Asian American. You know, I've never been there. Um, who's your fixer? Because she knew I was working on this project. And in my brain, I'm like, how can you in one breath say Matthew Heineman <laughs> Can't make a film about Tiger Woods, but you as a non-Muslim, as non- you're not an arab as an American Asian filmmaker, you think it's okay for you to make this film. And so in my brain, I also was saying like, I don't have a fixer. Because if you're going to make a film in a place like Saudi Arabia or North Korea, you don't want to be bringing someone with you around everywhere you go and they know that they're involved in the project. And then you leave and they stay there and the people might not be happy or the government might not be happy with the project. Mm -hmm. And that person is seen as being part of the actual storytelling and editing. They're not a subject of the film, right? Mm -hmm. So they actually have some kind of input into this. Mm -hmm. And if the government doesn't like the film you make, that person's in jeopardy. Right. So you if, you, if you're going to make a film in a place like Saudi Arabia, in my opinion, you should not have a fixer. Mm-hmm. And so it was really interesting to me that that particular filmmaker could criticize a film that she'd never seen based on the, the, the director's skin color. And then in the same breath, go around and want to make a film at a place that she'd never been to and had no background in. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was just, it was strange for me just to see that. I think. But yeah.
0: As a thought experiment, if your film were identical in every way and, but you happen to be Arab, I don't think anyone would have criticized. I mean, you, you may have leveled some, or people may, may have leveled some critiques of the film as a film, some minor whatever criticisms. Yeah. I don't think anyone would have called the film Islamophobic or anything like that with the same content. I think that that's probably the case.
1: That's what, yes. My executive producer, who's Yemeni and Muslim, he's he's said the same thing multiple times. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, this is, it's sort of coming from standpoint epistemology and postmodernism, this notion that you cannot possibly bridge the gap between identities, uh, no matter how much work you put in. I mean, this is something that strikes me just as as a poison for creativity. It's a flattening of human beings. Yeah, I think so.
1: I think for me, not only is it a flattening human beings, but it, con- it kind of ignores what makes us human to begin with. And what I mean by that is, you know, within with making this film if you, on paper, right? If you look at someone like so Nader in the film is one of the first guys that I really connected with. And on paper, we have absolutely nothing in common. Like he's Yemeni, uh, Muslim, 44, ex-member of, you know, Taliban and Al-Qaeda. I, at the time I was 36, you know, woman, American, ex-firefighter. On paper, we had absolutely nothing in common. But one thing that I will kind of say is like when you're a firefighter, you see a lot of horrific shit. And your job is basically to, you witness people's most traumatic moment of their lives on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of really bad things. And after a while, it does take its toll. And so we have to find a way to kind of like process it and decompress. And how firefighters, or the ones that I worked with anyway, chose to do that was through humor, like really dark, very politically incorrect humor that would probably get you fired in any other job. Mm -hmm. And I only heard that kind of humor in one other profession. And that was like military folks who'd seen combat. And it was just a way to kind of decompress and like laugh about things and kind of like make things lighter. And I never just had or saw that anywhere else, you know, outside of those two jobs until I met Nader. When I first met Nader, he told me stories about Guantanamo, horrific stories about things that he experienced, but he did it all with smile on his face and through bouts of uncontrolled laughter and through really dark jokes. Right. And we were, when we were, you know, filming, he, the guys in the room, you know, all men and, and some Arabs um, kind of all thought Nader was some kind of psychopath, right? Or that thought he was just flat out lying, lying. Mm-hmm. But I knew better because Nader told the same kind of jokes that my old firefighter buddies told me, mm-hmm. which meant that he was still processing trauma and he was trying to decompress. And so we kind of bonded with our shared love of inappropriate humor. And I would tell a joke and he would laugh and he would tell a joke. Like he said to me once, he's like, Meg, you should go on Guantanamo diet. You lose 40 pounds in one month, look great. <laughs> and he was talking about like hunger strikes, right? He's joking about hunger strikes. Yeah. And um, so we just kind of really quickly bonded and, you know, I saw him in a way, even though that I was white, non Muslim, non Arab, and a woman, I saw things in him and I connected things like as a human being with him that no one else in that room did. No one that, that is the same race or religion or sex. Because humans are more than just the boxes that you check on a census. Mm-hmm. They are, we're made up of things that they don't even have boxes for. Mm-hmm. And finding connection to other human beings through those various levels is what connects us. It's what, how we build our understanding. It's how we build connection and community. And it's how we build these relationships that make up our social kind of, you know, group.
0: So Arab American and Muslim American audiences that see this film, not through the filter of the controversy, but just nakedly, just see the film, Mm -hmm. are uh, largely enjoyed it. Yes. Yeah. And, and so the, the small minority of filmmakers, and I think it's relevant that they were filmmakers that. I think it's
1: relevant to say that when the attack started, it was the day after the announcement, which is before anyone had seen
0: the film. So the motives of that small minority, the heckler's veto, so to speak, that strikes me as interesting because it's something I've seen a lot in my life. So to make a analogy, when I was at Columbia, they assign way too much reading every week. Yeah. They assign more reading. For you, it would would have been really hell on earth. Yeah. For me, it was, it was bad. Yeah. And, but there's this one thing you can do if you happen to be a black student like I was or a student of color, which is whatever the reading was, instead of doing it, you could basically condemn it. If it was by a white person, you could say. Really? Yeah. You could oh say, well, this reading is actually, you know, our, our professor would have us, we have to go around and say something about the reading, Right to suss out whether we'd actually done it. If you hadn't really done it, you could say, well, I think it's really problematic. John Stuart Mill's a white guy, and yeah. I'm not sure he was really thinking about. And everyone was going, go oh, that's a, that's a pretty good point. You didn't really have to do the work. Right? Wait, wait, just so I'm clear, because again, it's been a while since I've been in university. So yeah. uh, it
1: definitely was not like that when I was in university. No, I don't think it was like that. But wait a minute. You can say like...
0: Oh, yeah. And you can get out of a sign reading like that? You could... I mean, so so you would have to go around and say something intelligent about what we were supposed to read. Yeah. Right? Every class. Yeah. In a class like Lit, Lit Hum, for example, which is part of the core curriculum. And we're reading the canon, most of which is white men, not all of which. So there's, there's always this ripcord you can pull for the inevitable days when like you're not going to do the assignment, but, which is to take the identity lens. Right. Yeah, but the whole
1: whole point of doing reading like that, at least my, because there's stuff I read at Stanford, I was like, this is horseshit. But like, it's good to like, I don't know, like, I think it's very strange for me to have to be able to come from something and say, like, I'm going to go through life and anything that I don't agree with, anything that's not in my same kind of like thought process, like, I don't want to hear about it
0: and it shouldn't exist. That's kind of what you're saying. I'm saying something a little bit more specific, which is that as a person of color in certain uh, highly progressive subcultures in the past, maybe six to eight years, you have this option of rather than consuming the text, consuming the content and, you know, giving your opinion of it, doing the work. You have this option of pulling the ripcord of identity and saying, oh, it's a white person. Hmm. Right. And that's what I feel the small minority of filmmakers that took issue with your film. That's what I feel that they're doing. Rather than really just, there may even be some envy involved. Like, what a great documentary. I wish I had done this myself, but yeah. I didn't. And so you have the option of pulling this ripcord of, oh, you're a white person. You're a man. You should not have told this story. Yeah. This is our story. And it's, there is some self interest, in my opinion. There's, it's a very tempting option if you are a person of color to pull that ripcord. And it's something more, I've seen more and more people do in literature and young adult fiction, in filmmaking. Over the past six to eight years. Yeah. So that's just my analysis of the issue as an outsider.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that what I would say is like, let's, I would say from the time that it was announced to Sundance, it was a little under two months. So there, it was being attacked by a, by a group of people that hadn't seen it for a while, but I also want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's say they did watch it at Sundance and they were offended by it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is okay, too. Yeah. I'm fine with that. I am fine with criticism. I think criticism is part of the process when you put things out into the world. I think criticism can sometimes make you a better storyteller, a mm. better journalist, a better writer, a better filmmaker. But there's a line between criticizing a piece of work and literally trying to get it blacklisted. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I think that for me, like I told you I'd been kidnapped. And when I came back um, after that, uh, like a within. I don't think you mentioned it. Oh. Didn't
0: men- you oh. didn't mention this. I uh, had heard about this, yeah. but I did. I do want to. Well, so when I was that you were kidnapped.
1: Yeah, so when I was kidnapped, um, seven people that I knew were disemboweled and decapitated, and it was a very you know it was a very intense situation. You have to
0: introduce that story a little bit more. <laughs> Where were you? Why were you there?
1: I was in Colombia. I was going through from I was going from Panama into Colombia, and we were crossing over the Darien Gap. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to say to your point was, when I got back to the states, I think I don't know how long after I was back here, I went to go to the movie theater and I saw a Bruce Willis movie. I think Mm -hmm. it was called Tears of the Sun or Under the Sun. Anyway, it's a it's a there's a rebel group that's going into villages and slaughtering people, like Mm -hmm. cutting off women's breasts and things like Mm -hmm. that. And I saw that film, and it was it was really hard for me, and I didn't really want to finish it. Mm -hmm. And I would say that if ever a film emotionally kind of disturbed me. In a way, it was that film. Mm-hmm. But I never in a million years would say, like, this film emotionally, like, hurt me. Mm-hmm. Therefore, no one else can watch it. Yeah. It's just like, hey, note to self. Like, after I saw that film, like, I probably shouldn't be watching any violent action movies that take place in the jungle for the next couple years. I'm just right. not, I'm just not there yet. And I did feel really affected by that in a negative way. But I would never... Right to the studio and say, You have to pull this film because I was really triggered by this. And therefore, I don't think it's safe for anyone else to watch. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's such an elitist and arrogant stance to take yeah. because at the end of the day, you can watch the film and have the exact opposite response to that. Like, mm-hmm. there was a film that came out years ago called The Four Lions, and it was a very di- divisive film because it was this dark comedy. I love the film. I was brilliant about Suicide bombers, and before the film ever premiered, there was all this controversy around it. And half the people that I knew who are Muslim loved that film.
2: Uh-huh.
1: The other half thought it was the worst thing ever made. Uh-huh. And I think what was a really disturbing about Sundance's response is when the pushback started before, after the announcement, they started to waver. And I was advised by a person like, "Hey, there's a bunch of Muslims writing letters to Sundance telling them to pull the film." What you need to do is reach out to the community who's already seen the film, who support the film and have them write letters to Sundance in support of it. Mm-hmm. So, which, so I did. So I went to the, the Yemeni community who'd seen the film, who'd screened the film beforehand, wrote a bunch of letters to Sundance saying why the film was important to them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Sundance knew this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so later on, you know, after the film premiered there, about a month later, Sundance issued an apology. And that apology to what was to all Muslim, Muslims and Arabs. That we offended all Muslims and Arabs with this. I was like, no, you didn't. And you know that because there's a huge group of people from the community who love this film, Mm -hmm. who want people to see this film. And you're basically treating this Muslim community as a monolith and you know better Mm -hmm. because there's no community that's a monolith. Right. And because a handful of people complain about the film, you now feel compelled to apologize for it because you think that these handful of people are offended. Therefore, everyone must be offended by it. And what was really interesting is the film got pulled from all these other film festivals like South By and San Francisco Documentary Film Festival, and no other film festival would touch it except for a film festival in New Zealand called Doc Edge. And then eventually we played in Zurich. And this is what was really interesting about that film festival. They'd the film and then they started to waver and they wanted to know all, know all these questions after the controversy about the film. We were going back and forth on email. I finally said, listen, let's just... We'll Zoom, you can ask me any question you want. I just need an answer now because I'm not going to jump through hoots for the next four months. And so we went on Zoom and we talked and they had no idea about all other stuff that was going on behind the scenes. So they, yeah, like, yeah, we really want to play this, but it's too late now to go in competition, but we want to do a special screening. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a debate and you're going to debate someone from the other side after the film. And I said, that's fine. As long as they watch the film, they're not going to ask me a question that I haven't already thought about of like a million times, Right. So there's this very, very famous filmmaker who's Muslim uh, and from Iraq and, and Switzerland named uh, Samir. And they introduced us over email. And I assumed that he'd seen the film because mm-hmm. they were setting it up like this guy was on the other side and mm-hmm. we were going to debate each mm-hmm. side. And he wrote to me. He was like, actually, no, I haven't seen it yet. So they just assumed because he was Muslim that he would hate this thing. So I was like, he's like, I would really love to see the film so I can prepare notes for our debate. He's like, sure. And I sent him a link. He writes me back and he goes... I love this film. It's brilliant. He's like, I mean, he's like, I could, I can be on a debate, but I'm going to be on your side. So you have to find mm-hmm. someone else for their side. Cause I think mm-hmm. this is a great film and here's all the reasons why he's like, I cannot believe you pulled this off. I'm from the middle East. I know how hard this would be. And he's like, I, the, the access you got was just blew my mind. Yeah. And so it was funny because originally the film festival had posted on their website, like the con- most controversial film of the year, followed by a heated debate. Da-da-da-da. They had to change that to be like, it's premiering on this date with a conversation to follow with Samir. Da, da, da. And so it was kind of like, even they perceive like, I mean, we saw it, but clearly every Muslim must hate this if this was what happened. And then one of the most prominent Muslim filmmakers in, in their country saw it and was like, no, this is a brilliant film. Yeah. It was really interesting to me to have people watch the film and with their own eyes say, yeah, I really love it. But clearly some people must hate it because of all the controversy around it, saying like, if there's smoke there should be fire. But sometimes as a firefighter, especially as a wildland fire, where there's, sometimes the smoke isn't the smoke. It's just morning fog. And you think mm-hmm. there's, you think there's smoke, you know, over the ridge, but it's just, just morning fog. And I think that for me, what was really frustrating is like, so a friend of mine who's in the Yemeni community, he knows about the film, was basically saying that this film was really important for them, for their people. Mm-hmm. Because we hear about Ukraine. We hear about how we do it on time. Close uh, to Yeah, just yeah. a couple more minutes. Yeah. You uh, can hear about Syria, but we don't really hear about Yemen, uh-huh. right, in the in the media much. And your film touches on the things that are not being talked about, uh-huh. right? So that's Yemenis being thrown in mass in Guantanamo, the carpet bombing of Yemen, uh-huh. all these things. And what was really frustrating for some of the people who worked on the film from the community was they put all this time, effort, and energy in creating this thing that we were supposed to be bring up some issues that we weren't talking about. And instead of talking about what, what's in the film itself, we wound up talking about who made it. And basically the analogy was, it's like we spent all this time, effort, and energy to create a rally to raise awareness for breast cancer. At the last minute, a handful of people show up screaming at the top of their lungs about glaucoma. Yes, glaucoma is bad, but breast cancer is (laughs) worse. And this is not the glaucoma rally. This is a breast cancer rally. And what my executive producer who's Yemeni said, he said, you you know, I was born in Yemen, raised there, in the Middle East, everyone treats Yemen like it's the Mexico of the Middle East. Right. Right. We're all labor. We're not educated. Da, 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 we just, And everyone looks down. All our neighbors look down at us and they ignore us. And, you know, he moved to the States and now he's a very successful businessman. He, he said, you know, I thought I left it all behind. And then this film that I was really proud to be a part of comes out. And again, my people's stories are ignored for... In his words, more like elite Muslims and their agenda, and he was really frustrated at that. And I can't blame him. And and I felt really bad because there was a lot of people behind this film from the community that was really wanting to have these discussions, and that just never happened.
0: Yeah, but
1: yeah, we don't have a lot. Of time. I, I, well, I need to
0: yeah. thank you for doing this. I had I had a great time. Before I let you go, yeah, I want to make sure nothing in this conversation exhausted or is a substitute for actually watching the thing. So, how can people support? Yeah, the documentary. Can, can they see it now? And if not, how can they support the eventuality of seeing it? Yeah.
1: So we like right after. So the New York Times was the first one. Actually, that's not true. Lorraine Elliott, the LA Times, was the first one to drop the story. But it was a, it was dropped as a story um, on the New York Times. And after that happened, a bunch of people reached out to me and they're like, "We want to help you. Do you have a GoFundMe?" I'm like, "I don't, but maybe I should." And mm-hmm. I started a GoFundMe page and we raised about three thousand dollars. And then I went on the Sam Harris podcast. Mm-hmm. And it just blew up. Nice. And now it's like at over $700,000. People listen to that podcast and we're really compelled and because of that. And that's the whole reason why I'm here. So they gave all this money to help me self distribute the film. So right now we're in New York because um, I took some of that money and I paid to screen it in New York and um, fly out here and do a and a with Sebastian Younger. And we're doing that um, right now because the film, when it premiered at Sundance, like the people that I was talking to, sales agents, PR people, they're like, this is going to be an Oscar film. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a front running Oscar contender. That's what
0: I would have guessed if I had seen it. Yeah. At, in it, that they're context. like, yeah. they're like, this totally.
1: film stays with you. And I would have
0: said this might be an Oscar contender and it's going to piss off some people on the right. That's yeah. what I would have said.
1: <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I remember like my PR guy at the time, um, he said, you know, literally ride for Sundance, we're starting your Oscar campaign. Cause this is going to be the film, mm-hmm. but because of the controversy and the attacks, And all the other film festivals pulling the film and everyone just basically like blacklisting it. That didn't happen. And for me, I typically, when you have a film at Sundance, there's two ways to qualify for the Oscars. One is to, what I would have done is you premiere at Sundance, you play a bunch of other film festivals. And if you win an award at one of those film festivals, you automatically qualify, which is great because that's a free way to qualify. The other way is you have to Four wall the film, which costs money because to rent a theater and all that kind of stuff. And so, because I hate rewarding bad behavior, I was like, fuck it. I know we're probably not going to get like, get an Oscar, but I want to Oscar quali- qualify this anyway because it would have been. And so, you know, a, a Fair, Fair, yeah. So, Fair in the Arts has been just amazing and least supportive. And they hosted a screening of the film in LA in July. And that's where I met Barry. And, and that's how Sam heard about the film. Mm. And they also helped me with the screenings to Oscar qualify it in Glendale. This is before we had all the GoFundMe money, and so we Oscar qualified it. And what we're doing now is we're doing the, the most like budget Oscar <laughs> campaign ever. So we've come to New York to screen the film, to do q and A, Q&A, to let people know who are Academy members that we're in the running, mm-hmm. and you know please just watch the film. And so right now, if you're an Oscar member, you can stream the film on the Academy's website. And you see it for yourself and make up your own mind. And so that's one way you can see it. The other way is we're going around the country, basically doing these screenings and having these discussions afterwards, because I think that it's, it's important that people see the film, but it's also more important that we have these really tough, nuanced, complex discussions that you really can't have on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I think that really should be done face to face. Yeah. And so right now um, the way that our industry works, it's very insular. And I was hoping that when the New York Times piece dropped, that there would be some buyers that read that and be like, hey, like, let's give this film a second shot. Mm-hmm. Let's take a second look at this. And then the New York Times piece dropped, the Sebastian Younger piece dropped, Graham Wood of the Atlantic dropped a piece, all in huge support of the film. And then I went on Sam Harris and we had a GoFundMe just blow up. So there's yeah. clearly an audience for this film. No doubt, no doubt. But crickets from buyers. And I was talking to a friend of mine and they basically said, the only way you're going to be able to turn this around and get distribution is if some big entity in the industry cancels out what Sundance did. Mm. So by Sundance apologizing for this film twice, it basically put it in a coffin and my career. And then when Abigail Disney, who was an executive producer, apologized for it, it just put all the nails in that coffin. And the only way to like (laughs) raise the dead if you have an equally respected entity, validate the film. right? And so the most famous entity in my business is the Academy, the Oscars. And so I'm hoping that if we're able to do this very grassroots campaign, if we're able to get it shortlisted, which is, a, again, a long shot because, you know, I'm a, still a pariah in, in my industry because of this. If we're able to get the film shortlisted, then maybe that will send a message to buyers that, hey, like this film's actually really good and yeah. it was, wasn't given a fair shake.
0: Yeah. Well, it is really good. And uh, I, th- I think we have to get out of this studio, but oh,
1: they can the- also see it. Sorry. And yeah. s- so we're doing screenings in Santa Monica or LA mm-hmm. okay. at the Lemley theater and tickets literally when available today. So if you want to buy tickets to that, it's a week long run where it's going to be in um, LA from the ninth to the 15th of December. And we're also having screenings on the 13th in uh, Malibu and again in, I think, in Beverly Hills, I think. And then we're going to go to Alabama and other places like that. Excellent. Big people, big number of people from Alabama and Texas reached out wanting to see the film. So, you know, it's, it's fun to take it to places that typically my industry ignores because we have really interesting conversations and I, I enjoy that.
0: Well, good luck with it. I'm happy to do my part in, um, you. you know, making people aware of it. And I will have the relevant links to GoFundMe and the screenings in the uh, description of the episode. Thank you so much, yeah, man.
1: thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a really good meeting you. You
0: too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.